This is the story of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee, Part 4, McNamara's Wrath and a Window on War. We find ourselves in the second year of John Kennedy's presidency, 1962. John Glenn would orbit the Earth, irritating but not particularly impressing the Soviet Union, which had accomplished that feat in 1961. Marilyn Monroe would die, possibly as the result of a mysterious assassination, depending on how many conspiracy documentaries you watch. The first James Bond movie, Dr. No, was in theaters. Stranger on the Shore by Mr. Acker Bilk was number one on the radio, and the world came stunningly close to World War III during the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis in October. I suppose if it's time for the fall of Western civilization due to a miscalculation in the Caribbean, Stranger on the Shore would have been a fine anthem. For all of the secrecy surrounding Kennedy's first NESC report in 1961, 1962 gives us a nearly completely declassified document from the group with minimal redactions. The 133-page document has charts, graphs, and images depicting a general nuclear war by 1965. It also has a few features that were very, very different from the reports that had come before. The most obvious of these was a war scenario that would begin specifically in Southeast Asia and quickly expand to a nuclear world war. All of the studies that had come before rested on the assumption that the Soviet Union would launch a surprise attack on the U.S., either by miscalculation or possibly malevolence. The scenario outlined in the report begins with the U.S. responding to an invasion of South Vietnam and Laos by the Communist North, which had been encouraged and supported by the Communist bloc. In the scenario, because the Soviet and Chinese forces expect some kind of U.S. response, they each go on heightened alert. Escalation in the region continues, the U.S. raises its own alert level, and the Soviet Union launches a preemptive nuclear attack. Even though the Soviet Union launches the first strike, as it had been assumed in previous years, the specific scenario is a major change in the character of the NESC study. But there was another change that scholars and media sensationalists have latched onto recently. This was the addition of a second scenario in which the United States was responsible for a preemptive attack on the Soviet Union. Through the Eisenhower years, the subcommittee had never entertained the possibility that the U.S. might strike first. But during the Kennedy administration, this became a point to ponder. 
The extremely dry and sanitized memo of discussions of the NESC from 1961 that we discussed last time mentioned at the very least that Kennedy asked about the effects of a preemptive attack. He asked if, quote, there had ever been made an assessment of damage resulting to the USSR which would be incurred by a preemptive attack. By 1962, the question was addressed fully by the net evaluation. Articles have popped up recently about whether the United States was planning a preemptive nuclear strike in 1962. It was not. The subcommittee had just strayed too far afield in its analysis, and this would begin the slow mechanism of its destruction. Another departure from other recent reports was the fact that the U.S. might be able to fight and win a nuclear war. Well, win might be a bit strong, but the phrasing was that the net balance following a general war in 1965 would favor the U.S. So, without too much enthusiasm, the net evaluation did indicate that the U.S. might come out ahead, or at least with its head. Whatever subtle change in the war game and analysis accounted for this nearly optimistic view, it did not carry over into 1963. The next year, the net assessment's view of the world was again a nuclear stalemate, with the Soviet Union and the United States in a standoff that, if it came to war, would result in total, mutual annihilation. The final assessment of the net evaluation states that neither the U.S. nor USSR can emerge from a full nuclear exchange without suffering very severe damage and high casualties. This holds true whether the attack is initiated by the U.S. or the USSR. National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy wrote a memo to Kennedy before the oral presentation of the 1963 NESC report. He tried to summarize what the president and his advisors were about to hear. He wrote, quote, The fundamental conclusion is that these wars are unacceptably destructive for both sides on all assumptions. This was the admission for the first time that a stalemate had been reached and a state of mutual assured destruction had been attained. Mutual assured destruction, or MAD, was the unstated policy of maintaining a three-pronged response so that if the U.S. were ever attacked with nuclear weapons, it could, without a doubt, respond to the aggressor with an overwhelming and ultimately devastating retaliatory attack. Land-based, bomber-based, and submarine-based nuclear weapons would rain down on anyone with the gumption to attack the U.S. first. Of course, the other side, the Soviet Union, could do the same, and that was the surface tension that kept the peace. This state of affairs was understood, and the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, 
has often been credited with its architecture. But Kennedy was still surprised by the casualties described in the net assessment. He had been given a rosy outlook by the Strategic Air Command in December of 1962 that held that a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union would reduce the U.S. casualties to only 12 million. But then, in 1963, the NESC told a story of casualties in the range of 63 to 134 million if the war were to happen in 1968. There were only 200 million people living in the U.S. by the end of the 1960s, so that is just about 70% of everyone you know or love. There were a couple of reasons for the dire change in the predictions of the net evaluation. The first was that the NESC assumed that the Soviet Union would target civilian populations. Intercontinental ballistic missile launch sites are in the middle of nowhere. Unless it's the edge of your cow pasture, I guess. Military facilities are a little closer to population centers, but the outright targeting of civilian populations radically increased the expected death toll. The second reason that things looked worse in the 1963 report was that the subcommittee included a calculation for the use of what was described as huge megaton weapons. Between 1961 and 1962, the Soviet Union detonated five nuclear weapons that were larger than the largest ever set off by the United States. These were huge weapons, and not just science projects. The list includes the October 1961 Aircraft Deliverable 58 megaton device and the 24 megaton ICBM deliverable test 219 in December 1962. The NESC study of 1963 did serve one essential purpose. That was to make perfectly clear that a preemptive nuclear strike on the Soviet Union was not an option. At the NSC meeting, when the 1963 net evaluation was discussed, Kennedy asked if the casualty estimates could be reduced if the U.S. made a preemptive strike. In his words, today, with the Soviets in a low state of alert. The question was answered by Secretary of Defense McNamara, quote, In the many studies I have had done for me, I have not found a situation in which a preempt during a low alert condition would be advantageous. Under no circumstances have I been able to get U.S. casualties under 30 million. In fact, I have not been able to get them down to 30 million. Kennedy mused aloud, Preemption is not possible for us. Because the findings of the subcommittee in 1963 suggested so strongly that nuclear war would ultimately mean the annihilation of the United States in all instances, members of the National Security Council 
questioned whether releasing some of those findings to Congress might not have some value in bringing about increased support for the administration's policies. Secretary of State Dean Rusk suggested that, quote, if Congress knew the conclusions presented in the report, the administration could get funds for aid and information programs which are the resources we must rely on in our effort to prevent all-out nuclear war. McGeorge Bundy was quick to point out that the whole existence of the NESC had been one of the very few government projects that had not been leaked. Kennedy agreed, but felt that releasing some of the most sobering findings might have some value. The National Security Council decided to keep the existence of the subcommittee secret and make any release of information look as if it had come from some other agency. It might be said that the NESC committed institutional suicide in 1964. To serve the ends of the Pentagon, the committee and the Joint Chiefs veered dramatically away from the original charter, stepping on departmental toes and eventually bringing down the wrath of Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, which was significant and final. The report itself is classified, though a summary of the projects undertaken by the group does exist in the form of a letter from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Earl Wheeler to McGeorge Bundy. The final report fails to follow the format set out in all previous years, a detailed quantitative evaluation of a general war between the United States and the Soviet Union or Sino-Soviet bloc. Instead, it delves into issues of policy and diplomacy and the overall disposition of forces in Europe. So, instead of answering the specific questions it had been tasked with that year, the NESC veered into areas of policy consultation and war planning. For the 1964 study, the group was asked to consider three areas, worded this way. One, the manner in which a war between the U.S. and USSR might be initiated. Two, the factors, political, military, and economic, affecting decisions at critical points in the war, particularly during the early phases of hostilities. Three, the effects on the U.S., its allies, and the USSR of actions resulting from such decisions. The introduction goes on to say that the report's overall purpose was to evaluate the validity and feasibility of this type of analysis as a basis for providing guidance for political military planning. This was very dangerous territory because these were issues that were squarely in Robert McNamara's Department of Defense, and the net evaluation was stepping on McNamara's toes. Worse, the NESC transgressed into matters of the State Department 
By taking into consideration the ways that alliance politics hampered the military and political decision-making process, it was a wildly different interpretation of the job of the subcommittee, and it brought McNamara's wrath down on them like a hammer. The work of the NESC was circulated in October, and in response, NSC Executive Counsel Bromley Smith sent a memo to McGeorge Bundy on the 24th. The memo was a laundry list of the issues he had with the 1964 report. Smith complained that the questions to be addressed had been changed by the Joint Chiefs and that the report knocked down the assumptions about nuclear war that European military policy had been based on. After listing the transgressions of the subcommittee, Smith wrote, On the basis of this report, I believe we should try again to abolish this mechanism, or at least turn it over to McNamara to use as he sees fit. McGeorge Bundy chose to be slightly more diplomatic in his response to General Wheeler, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. On the 26th of October, he wrote, The report differs from the reports of earlier years in that it does not evaluate a model war, and in this respect, it seems to me to have given a different interpretation than usual to the directive approved by the president. Bundy then asked Wheeler to furnish copies of the report to the secretaries of defense and state because it had moved into matters of the State Department and probably to give McNamara some ammunition to pursue the destruction of the subcommittee. President Lyndon Johnson did not attend the briefing of the report, which was unusual. With McNamara unconstrained, he made his feelings perfectly clear in that meeting. In an interview conducted by the National Security Archive at the George Washington University with James E. Goodby, then a member of the Policy Planning Council in the State Department, Goodby remembered that McNamara became visibly angry in the meeting. Goodby had participated in the preparation of the report and was sent to Europe to meet with the military leadership there. It was his feeling that McNamara reacted the way he did because the NESC saw itself as an independent channel for the military to provide analysis to the White House and therefore presented a challenge to McNamara's authority. In an interview with Henry Glass, assistant to the comptroller of the Defense Department, the interaction between the NESC and McNamara is recounted clearly specifying what made McNamara so visibly angry and what finally brought about the dissolution of the committee. Glass said, It was a dangerous thing to keep information from McNamara. He set an example early on with the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the NSC. General Leon Johnson, director of the NESC, told McNamara they were not working for him, and McNamara got rid of that subcommittee. McNamara did not tolerate the withholding of information. 
McNamara became a man on a mission to abolish the NESC soon after. On the 23rd of December, 1964, he circulated a draft memo titled Elimination of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council, in which he stated that he had for some time questioned the value of continuing the work of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council. Based on his belief, that the group represented a wasteful expenditure when other study groups in the Pentagon were doing better, more specific work in the area. McNamara wrote, While the annual study program of the NESC had value and relevance in 1958, its contribution today is minimal. McNamara must have been particularly eager to shut down the NESC A memo from Benjamin Reed, the executive secretary for the Secretary of State, registered a certain degree of impatience. He said, quote, I have received two or three calls from Secretary McNamara's office urging action by us on this proposal by Secretary McNamara to abolish the Net Evaluation Subcommittee. Apparently, we are the only agency which has not commented on the proposal at this time. The next day, the acting Secretary of State, George W. Bell, replied to McNamara's memo and agreed that the argument for discontinuing the NESC was sound and that the Department of State had no objection to the proposal. On March 18, 1965, without delay or fanfare, President Johnson signed National Security Action Memorandum 327, declaring that the Net Evaluation Subcommittee had, quote, served its purpose. With that, one of the most secretive groups in the national security complex, with its ability to formulate a view into the future of nuclear war, passed into history. A Conclusion a window on war. Through luck, judgment, wise counsel, or some optimum mix of the three, the presidents who served during the years of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee never had to launch an atomic attack or endure a Soviet first strike, and yet they fought so many nuclear wars. Through the NESC, These presidents were engaged in an unrelenting virtual nuclear war that saw the United States, Soviet Union, allies, enemies, and eventually the environment itself destroyed in an array of apocalyptic conflagrations. Over time, attitudes surrounding such a war changed, reflecting the increasingly dismal appraisals of victory, and then the increasingly dismal appraisals of survival, first of the individual, then the nation, and then the world. The Net Evaluation Subcommittee was not constituted to offer advice on tactics or suggest strategies for war. That was the dominion of other groups in other departments and organizations. 
it did not offer solutions to that Gordian knot of nuclear policy. It did not exist to formulate resolutions to the threat of war. What the NESC did was to provide a detailed account of a war that had not been fought, but nonetheless might be fought, and to offer a window onto the aftermath of that war. It was a window onto a world shaken and unmoored by the nearly unimaginable scale of death and destruction. It was a window that appalled, repulsed, and often horrified those who saw the view. This episode and this series on the Net Evaluation Subcommittee was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. This week's music by Maiden and Ryan Anderson. You can follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault, and check out coldwarvault.com for show notes, images, and other things. And please like and subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Until next time. <laughs>